Good day to our listeners and welcome to The Middle Podcast. My name is Jim Nelson and I am your host and this production continues to be a ministry of Living Word Church in Oak Harbor, Washington. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you are tuning in for the first time, this is episode three of our fifth season. In this late winter, early spring, we're combining the disciplines of music and Bible awareness. Music has long been a part of the Christian experience. My first exposure was from worship songs started in about 1994-1995 time frame, and that takes me back. Let's see, can I remember some of those first songs I heard? How about You Are My All in All, The Heart of Worship by Matt Redman. It begins with When the Music Fades, that one, right? Remember that one? (laughs) Maybe not my version of it, but some version of it. How about Shout to the Lord by Hillsong? This one was sung all around the world. And of course, there's Matt Redman's Better Is One Day. And that was a great song also to sing along to. But probably my favorite one to listen to at the time was Open the Eyes of My Heart by worship pastor Paul Belosh. He's written tons of music, but this one I just remember with really, really fond memories. Kristen and the kids and I actually saw him live a number of times, mostly at Creation Fest in Eastern Washington which took place, uh, I think it was every July at the Gorge Amphitheater. They're not doing it anymore. But we had such incredible times with the church family. We'd camp, four days, tents, sleeping bags. You pay a little extra for hot water, but never really get the hot showers. Meals together just all day, morning to night, listening to music centered around the supremacy and the majesty of Christ. It's so fun. So why do I tell you this? I think it's just because how much it meant to me that the music heralding Jesus still reverberates in my soul so much time later, 15, 20, coming up on 20 years later. And as impacting as these were for me, the bigger biblical realities that music and singing was a huge part of the temple life in ancient Israel. And according to the temple.org website, it says this, Jewish prayer and worship rest on a foundation of music. As far back as the temple in Jerusalem, the priest wove musical accompaniment into the ritual life of Judaism. In ancient times, it continues, literacy was not common, and the Jewish people used music to aid in the memorization of essential prayers. Isn't that same principle so true today? I can't remember where I left my car keys, but Tom Petty's song, Refugee, comes on the radio. I'm belting out the words like it was back when I was playing Little League. Isn't it amazing when that happens to you? I think it's just remarkable, but it really shows the power of musical lyrics when it comes to cueing our memory. All that was just a slow introduction into today's episode. I did have a selection picked out ahead of time, but an event happened this past week that shifted my focus. The classic rock music family lost an icon on January 20th. Marvin Lee Aday passed away at the age of 74. Never heard of him? Probably not. But you may know him by his stage name, and that is Meatloaf. Chris and I heard the news during breakfast. We quickly offered our condolences to one of our closest friends who is a huge fan of Meatloaf. Her name is Sandy. She's a listener of this podcast. And so knowing that she knows Meatloaf songs and lyrics way better than I do, I ask her to give me a title or a line that references a Bible story, and I'll turn it into that this week's episode. 
she sent me this comment that she had found online. It was very funny to read considering the task that I had given her. And I'm not sure who wrote this, but the author said this. General comment, it started out. Personally, I don't think Jim Steinman, who who worked with Meatloaf composing songs and writing the lyrics. Personally, I don't think Jim Steinman or Meatloaf are sophisticated enough to to write songs with hidden messages or even non-obvious meanings. Now, I read that. I just started to laugh. I mean, it was just blunt and funny. Again, I'm not sure who said it, but hopefully you'll see the challenge that I was taking on. So I poured over Meatloaf lyrics, and there's a lot, I guess you could say, fantasy-type imaging Lots of motorcycle references, lost loves. There's a number of religious references, but just not a lot of organization or maybe a better, no no theme around the lyrics that I could really launch with. So just an example, I listened to his first big hit back in 1977, and it's a huge hit off of one of the best-selling albums of all times. It's called Bat Out of Hell. And ultimately, I think it's just a story about a motorcycle accident. You know, it just kind of ugh, kind of ends with that. Now, I never was a huge listener of his early music, but there's one that I remember fondly because it charted during my listening to rock music period, and that was the 1993 rock ballad, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. Long title, but it charted around the world and was Meatloaf's only number one hit on the Billboard Top 100 list, and it even received a Grammy for best solo rock performance. Chris and I had been married just over a year, and it was a song that we would listen to. And when this all came up and I'm trying to figure out a song, I asked her, hey, I played it for us. Hey, do you remember this? She goes, oh yeah, I remember that song. But bottom line, it was a huge hit. Now you may be saying that you remember that song and may be curious how I'm going to turn that into a discussion on the Bible. I agree with you until I came across one line in the song that cemented this week's title. So before I give it to you, please remember the idea of this podcast is not to redeem these songs and lyrics, because at times I'm not sure how I would do that. This may be one of those, but rather to use them as a launch into a Bible topic or theme. And this is, this is one as a great springboard. Here's the words. Some days I just pray to the gods of sex and drums and rock and roll. That's the line. Some days I just pray to the gods of sex and drums and rock and roll. Today, we're going to talk about false gods and idols. All right, false gods and idols. Thank you, Meatloaf, for that intro. But what does the Bible mean when it talks of false gods and idols? We'll just define it really simply to get our conversation going. A little g-god or idol is anything that we elevate in our life to the level of God himself. What are we finding our identity in, or where do we feel secure and safe, or what is driving the way I live? What do I worship? And we can identify so many things. Sure, pleasure, and as Meatloaf points out, but also far more than just drums and rock and roll, there's self Let's just start there. I'm awesome. I'm educated. So I must be God. Now, no one would ever come out and say it like that, but we behave and act in a way that kind of reflects that at times. There's money, there's success, there's fame, there's substances that we put into our body. Uh, How about comfort? Bottom line, 
It may not be rock and roll, but we've all got something we worship that is not Jesus. So if we're going to talk about this topic, we have to start in the Old Testament and the story of Moses on Mount Sinai and the story of the Ten Commandments. That itself is all explained in Exodus 20, but we'll start in the account in Exodus 19 because there's one really important detail that needs to be pointed out. So in Exodus 19, God calls Moses to the mountain while the rest of the people of Israel are camped in the plains below. God reminds Moses on his rescuing and saving them from Egypt's slavery and informs them that if they obey his voice and keep his commandments, which they don't have yet at this point, but it's getting there, they will be his treasured possession. So what does God mean by treasured possession? Is it just simply a lot of free gifts? Is it it a lot of gifting of properties and goods, or is it a lot of wealth? What is meant by being a treasured possession? Luckily, God answers our question on what it means to be that in the next couple of lines, and specifically in verse 6. It says, You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His treasured possession means that they will become a kingdom of priests and a set-apart nation. To his treasured people, they were to represent God to the nations and kingdoms around them. That's what priests do. And then embody that responsibility in the way they worship, in the way they organize themselves, in the way they view justice, and in the way the family and community dynamic is just played out. All of this would be in stark contrast to the alternate kingdoms that surrounded them. So what is the people's response? Verse 8 says, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They were on board. God will come. He'll give us direction. We're going to be his representatives. Got it. We'll do, God. But when it's time to go to the mountain to be with God, the people see the thunder. They see the clouds of God's presence, and they chicken out. They refuse to go up. So it ends up Moses just goes up alone. That's the disappointing setting as we get to Exodus chapter 20. Instead of an entire nation being taught by God, it's just Moses. And here's the first two commandments to the Israelite nation that they are being asked to follow. You'll know them. Number one, you shall not have any other gods besides him, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. So no Baal, who is a contemporary god of the Canaanites, for example, not him, but project forward, you know, no god of money, no god of self, no god of pleasure, nothing above the god of creation, just God, and he is good enough. And then number two, no carved or somehow fabricated images that you would bow down to and worship. Number two is an interesting topic that we'll begin to close our time together with. And I love how the biblical authors address this subject because they just boil it down to the very, very simple. Remember, no carved images or no fabricated images that you would worship. Here's Psalm 135, starting in verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. 
Now, I know my woodworking skills or any kind of crafting skills for that matter. If I make it, it's inferior to God in every way. Even the skill, the craft persons, the artisans, the psalmist says, you can carve ears into it, but that idol can't hear you when you worship it. You worship it for knowledge, but it can't speak any wisdom back to you. So that's an impressive set of words. But And here's another one, Isaiah 44. We'll start in verse 15, but the chapter starts off great too. Just I just ask if you go back and read it. I'm just going to include this portion of it for time. This is just a bit of how the prophet addressed the futility of this idol worship or this false god worship. The carpenter measures with the line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down the cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used for fuel as burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest of it, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. No one stops to think. No one has a knowledge or understanding of it. Wait a minute. Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate it. Shall I bow down to a block of wood? So why all this fuss over false gods and idols? Why does God care if I substitute something for him? What's the harm, say, in that story at Mount Sinai of Aaron and the Israelites creating a golden calf? It's meant to be an image that represents God anyway. What's the big deal? The reason God doesn't want images or idols of himself is because he already has images of himself. Does that ring a bell at all? Think back to Genesis 1.26. It says this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it's followed in verse 27 with a little poem that just says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God wants to image himself, he does it through humankind. We are to bear that image of God. Now, we know ourselves, and maybe you know more about the Old Testament, but bottom line, we don't do a great job at imaging God. And it's pretty much a train wreck until Jesus comes along. Jesus comes to be the human that we can't be. There are a couple of really neat references from the New Testament that describe this. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul describes how Jesus' authority comes from being that perfect image of God. It says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the exact image of his nature. And he holds it up the universe by the word of his power. Jesus came to show us how to be those images, how to reflect God's character and embody to live out in our daily lives the nature and character of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a great responsibility to be an image bearer. I'm hopeful that this week encourage you, as it did me, to really consider what that means in my day-to-day life. God bless you and thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week with our next episode.